Well, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. We are so delighted that you're here uh, to join us in worship. It's good to be in God's house uh, with God's people. Um, the passage of scripture that we'll consider this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. If you'd like to turn there, I'll read the passage for us and then pray for us as we consider God's word this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you do not merely have love, you are love. And we come to a passage that speaks with forcefulness and clarity about your love in your Son. And so we pray along with Paul in Ephesians 3 now that by your Holy Spirit, you would grant us to have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge with the result that we may be filled with all the fullness of God Our simple prayer before you is that you would fill our lives with your love, that we would never be the same. Pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's because of this passage that I stand here before you today. I'm not speaking mainly of my conviction to preach this passage, but rather of the conviction of others born out of this passage. Long before my heart was moved by the compelling love of God in Christ, God moved in the hearts of others. Rivermont's mission as a church flows out of verse 14. It's stated this way, we seek the renewing of lives through God's compelling love in Lynchburg and in the world. Because Rivermont believed in the compelling love of God, because you believed in the compelling love of God, because one man in particular believed in the compelling love of God, indeed most deeply because of the God who has compelling love, I stand here before you today. I stand here with a renewed life, by God's grace. I stand here, a living fruition of this church's mission. In 2007, Ron mentioned, Rivermont so believed in this mission that they formalized a partnership with a college ministry called Campus Outreach. It was around that time that a man named Matt Bradner, along with his family and several other Campus Outreach staff members, uprooted their lives in North Carolina and crossed the border uh, to their north to launch a college ministry in Virginia with a vision and a passion to reach Virginia college students for Christ. 
couple years later in 2009, I arrived on Randolph College's campus, almost right here in Rivermont's backyard. I was living in the world and for the world with all my heart. I was seeking the pleasures of sin, and I had been for some time. And it was that year that I began to taste sin's emptiness. I sensed a longing for something more. Increasingly, I distinctly remember feeling conviction over my sin and acutely fearing the judgment of God. I sensed that I needed a Savior. I'd heard about that Savior growing up, but in November of 2010, because of Rivermont, because of campus outreach, because of Matt, because of you, I heard about the Savior I so desperately needed in my life was never the same. If you could knock down this wall right here and travel back in time 10 years, you could watch the moment take place. It was in Randolph College's gym after our first basketball scrimmage of my sophomore year that my coach allowed Matt, after three years of asking, to share the story of how he became a Christian in college and to invite any of my teammates and myself who might be interested to speak to him afterwards. It was because of that moment that I struck up a friendship with Matt. If you were to fast forward just a few days and knock down this wall right here to my right, your left, you could witness the moment take place at Magnolia Foods. If you were there, you would hear Matt share the gospel with me and plead with me for my soul. You could follow me back to my dorm room that afternoon as I wrestled on my knees with my Bible open considering the most important decision I would ever make. You could see me grab the phone to call Matt Feel the anticipation as he didn't answer. Watch him call back and then rush to campus. Hear us pray together in his silver Taurus just down the road off Rivermont Avenue in front of Randolph College's main hall. You could watch the moment when God saved a wretch like me. Friends, I can tell you this story because of these verses. Because people, because a church, because a ministry believed these verses. I don't know how many prayers were prayed, how much money was given, how many meetings happened, and how many sacrifices were made that this would all take place. What I do know is that I stand here today before you because of this passage. And now I hope to offer this passage back to you as a gift. My prayer is that as we consider this passage, God would move in your heart, whether in a fresh way or for the first time, to behold His compelling love in Christ. And if God would be pleased to do that, I would consider that one of the great contributions and privileges of my young life. It's the love of Jesus Christ that stands in the foreground of this passage. It's the love of Jesus Christ that is front and center in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. And helpfully, we don't merely see Christ's love in theory or in abstract form. We see Christ's love as it seizes, as it intersects, as it redirects the life of a man named Paul, the life of someone just like us. Paul, in particular, is going to show us three effects that Christ's love has, three ways Jesus Christ's love changes a person, three ways Jesus intends to change us. The three ideas are this. The love of Jesus Christ controls us, recreates us, and reconciles us. It controls us, recreates us, and reconciles us to God. First of all, the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. That word controls is significant. It contains the idea of being pressed in on both sides. Some translations say compels. Paul is in essence saying this. The the effect of Christ's love is that it's motivational. It's motivational. In other words, it moves you in a particular direction. 
you can imagine that image that Paul uses with the word of two walls closing in. And you don't have to be claustrophobic to physically, even as you imagine it, feel the anxiety build as the walls close in, right? In the same way, the love of Jesus Christ presses in on us. It's as if Paul's saying it presses in on us from every direction. And the idea behind it is that you can't experience the love of Christ and remain unaffected. You can't stay in the same place once you've experienced it. It creates a sort of pressure that moves you. What sort of pressure does it create? I want to suggest to you this morning that the pressure the love of Christ creates is not so much like two walls that threaten to suffocate you, but rather two arms whose embrace motivates you. It has a motivational effect. Two nail-scarred arms that embrace you, engulf you, and motivate you. The pressure of Christ's love is not the sort that leaves you gasping for air, but rather the sort that takes your breath away. And in so doing, breathes life into you. Friends, this is the effect of the cross. This is what happens when we behold the cross. Deep down, we come to the cross knowing that God has every reason to reject us. And yet, we look at the cross and find that He accepts us. We fear that if God ever truly knew us, He could never really love us. Stunningly, we find at the cross that we are at the same time fully known and truly loved. Who better to forgive us than the party that we've offended? Who else is fit to pardon our transgressions, to separate our sin from us, than the one against whom we've trespassed? Who else could extend pardon? And yet, who is the one that has forgiven us and extended pardon and separated our sins from us? Is it not Him? Is it not God Himself? And what does this mean? It means... That if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Additionally, it means that if God is for us today, if you have come to God through Christ in repentance and faith, and God is for you today, it means there is no future day when God will not be for you. It means there are no exceptions, no qualifiers to this statement. It means there are no catches, no yeah buts. There's no day out there when you don't walk into and live in the love of God. God will never rescind His offer. He'll never revoke His favor. He'll never remove His love from you if you've come to Him. Isn't that reality the most motivational force in all the universe? Friends, Christianity does not motivate you with the shame of failure or the guilt of religion, but rather the love of Jesus Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. Or to borrow Paul's words in verse 15, because of this, because we know the love of God, because we've concluded what He's done, verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. Christ's love controls us. The love of Christ controlled Paul. His past shaped him. Circumstances marked him. Suffering touched him. People hurt him. Trials humbled him and disappointment saddened him. But none of these things controlled him. The love of Christ controlled him. It begs the question for us, what controls you and I? Another way to ask that same question is this. What is your why? What is your why? Everyone has one. Catherine and I have recently reached a rite of passage moment in our parenting. Joya, our three-year-old, has entered the why phase. 
Now, if you've ever uh, been a parent or a sibling or have just been around kids, you've likely experienced this. This is when they incessantly ask, why? Just the other night, I was giving her a bath, and she bombarded me with a series of whys. As I put her one-year-old sister in the tub beside her, she asked, and this happens every single night, but she asked, Dada, why is she in the water? As I cleaned her, she asked, Dada, why you put that in my hair? As I drained the water, she asked, Dada, why the water going night-night? At one point, she looked up at me and asked me to pour water on her chin, to which I replied, baby, why do you want me to pour water on your chin? And she thought about my question in silence for a moment and answered so fittingly and nonsensically, Dada, why you do that? Why is an important question. Why gets to the bottom of a matter. So what's your why? What's the bottom of your motivation, the foundation? If you were to trace it down, what's there? I don't ask that question to shame you. I ask that question to encourage you, to give you a vision that flows out of this passage. God wills, brothers and sisters, God wills that our motivation, the foundation of our motivation, would be the love of Jesus Christ. Is there anything better than that? God wills that you and I would be able to say with Paul that the love of Christ controls us. The second thing in our passage is that the love of Christ recreates us. It controls us and it recreates us. Notice Paul's language in verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That word behold is significant. Paul wants to grab our attention. He wants to see something stunning. The language he uses, that creation language, harkens back to two moments in history. The first is recorded for us in Genesis 1. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The author Moses goes on to narrate God's creative work throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. What we find is that from the formless, void, dark matter that we just read about, God creates a world teeming with life, light, and beauty. And Paul is picking up on that and saying, this is God's pattern. Just as God takes the dark, formless, void of matter and molds it into a world that he himself would say is very good, so God can take a heart darkened by sin, void of spiritual life, that's so chaotic it has almost no recognizable form of the image of God remaining because of sin, and recreate it into the image of his own son. God recreates us. The North African theologian St. Augustine famously stated, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. Fundamentally, he's saying our sin issue is not merely that we lack love, but that our love is out of order. We often love less important things more and more important things less. God's recreative work reorders our loves. It's when we behold his love for us at the cross that our hearts leap with love for him. And as that happens, everything else gets reordered consequently. Then it's after that moment in Matt's car that I mentioned a few minutes ago. When I begged God to save me, Matt texted me a Bible verse. It was 2 Corinthians 5.17. I was on my way to basketball practice that day and I didn't have a Bible on me. I stopped in the computer lab there in Main Hall and I looked it up. And I remember looking over my shoulder because quite frankly I felt embarrassed. I also, if I'm just being honest, I also felt like a fraud. And I remember reading that verse thinking, this sounds great, but I don't feel anything like a new creation. It was in the coming weeks, months, 
in year or so that I experienced God recreate me. It was purely by His grace. I was trying to do the very things I had done prior to my conversion to obey God when I'd fallen flat on my face, but God was recreating me. He was giving me new desires. He was reordering my loves. As I beheld His love in His Word and at the cross, God was reordering my loves and recreating my life. Verse 16 in our passage is a practical outworking of verse 17. It hinges upon verse 17. It relates to verse 17. Paul's in effect saying this. If we've experienced God's recreative work in our lives, here's the effect. We'll see other people differently. We'll view other people through a different lens. We won't see people any longer, as Paul says, according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? C.S. Lewis famously remarked, you have never talked to a mere mortal. He's saying when God recreates our lives, how do we see others? We begin to see others as eternal souls. And what we value in ourselves and in others begins to change. We begin to look not merely on outward appearance or mainly on outward appearance, but we begin to look at the heart just like God does. We begin to treasure and cherish character, inner beauty, humility. And even if a person doesn't possess those things, what we cherish in someone and value in someone is the inherent dignity that every person possesses as an image bearer of God. We begin to see people differently when God recreates us. The final idea in our passage is that God reconciles us. He reconciles us. It's notable that Paul connects the idea of recreation with reconciliation. And at first glance, it's difficult to follow. It almost feels a little confusing. How does he jump from this language of new creation to reconciliation? Well, it seems that the link that's in Paul's mind is a specific passage in the Old Testament that was fixed on his mind as he took his pen to papyrus. It's likely that the passage is the latter portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. You're going to see the language of Isaiah 40 through 66 everywhere here in our passage. I want to pull out just a few moments for you. This is that second historical moment that I mentioned a few minutes ago. The historical moment that's rooted in chapters 40 through 66 is the time, the period, when Israel was exiled to Babylon. When Israel, God's people, were sent into exile. Individually and nationally, this was a tragedy in every sense of the word. Individuals and the people saw their property plundered, their family enslaved and killed, and even worse. They saw their homeland, what they had worked so hard for, they saw it destroyed. They saw their lives utterly uprooted. They were taken away to a foreign land. They were put under the thumb of a godless government. And it seemed to them, you have to imagine, it seemed they were separated from the promises and presence of God. And it's to these men, women, and children in this circumstance, that God says these words. Listen to this promise in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, says the Lord, I am doing a new thing. In other words, God is promising there would be a day when the old would pass away and the new would come. Paul says in verse 17, that's what has happened. He's talking referring back to that day. In the following chapters in Isaiah, God explains to Israel why it is they had been exiled. He says, in effect, it's not merely because of the natural, seemingly random rise and fall of nations. Rather, they're sent into exile because of their sin. 
their individual sin and their national sin. That's at the root of the problem. Listen to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. God says to the people, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God is promising them recreation. He's promising this nation recreation that would happen through reconciliation. He's saying this, if I would fulfill my promise of recreating you as an individual and as a nation, something must happen first. First, you must be restored into right relationship with me. And friends, the same is true for us. If God would recreate our lives, it would happen through reconciliation. We must be restored into a peaceful relationship with God. The problem our sin has caused is not only that it's disordered our lives. The problem that it's caused is that our disordered loves have resulted in dishonoring God. And God is good, which means he must vindicate his honor. He won't let his name be run through the mud. He must do something that vindicates his own holiness and worth. And for those who have dishonored God, this is, at least at first glance, not good news. It means we stand in response condemned, rightly condemned under his judgment. Yet, the promise still stands. It stands for Israel and it stands for us. There's hope that we could be recreated and reconciliated to God. How does it happen? It happens for us the same way God promised it would happen for the Israelites. And stunningly, what he promised would happen for the Israelites had an initial fulfillment then and a final fulfillment for us now. It all hinges on a famous passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. I imagine you're familiar with this chapter. The chapter is about a a coming savior called the suffering servant, the servant of Israel who would suffer on behalf of the people. You could say it this way. It's the Old Testament version of verse 21 in our passage when God promised that he would make him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him sinners could become the righteousness of God. Listen to the language in Isaiah 53. This is verse 9. Isaiah 53, 9 says of this Messiah, he is one who had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In other words, he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. Friends, on the cross, Jesus not only suffered for sin, though he did. He became sin. That's the powerful language of the text. He was made to be sin. Just as Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, so Christ became sin for us. He became what he was not, that we might become what we could not, namely the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. It's notable that we don't just possess the righteousness of God. It's not merely something external, though it is. It's something that actually characterizes us now as a Christian. Here's the point. The gospel is not this. The gospel is not that God gives us a second chance or a clean slate. That's not the gospel. The gospel is better than that. The gospel is that God seals us with the very righteousness of his own son eternally eternally and definitively. So it can never be separated from us because we're united to his son who is righteous. That's the gospel. And because of that, our standing with God is utterly secure. This is why there is no future day out there when God might remove his love from us because he has eternally united believers 
to his own son. And he promised he would do this. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, this is the good news of Christianity. This is the message Matt shared with me that day at Magnolia's. This is what I heard trumpeted from Rivermont's pulpit as I came here as a brand new Christian eager to grow in Christ. This is the compelling love of God in Christ. And this is available to any and all without distinction, without exception. There's almost no condition. If there is a condition, you could say it's this, that you would feel your need for a Savior and that you would come to Him, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm more ready to receive you than you are even to come to me. Friends, if you sense your need of a Savior, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, I plead with you, I implore you to use Paul's language to be reconciled to God, to come to Him, to look not to your sin, but to look to Jesus taking your sin on the cross and to run to Him in repentance and faith. To use Paul's words, be reconciled to God. And if you have been reconciled to God, if we have been reconciled to God, how might we respond to this passage? How might we respond to this message in this passage? In Paul's words, let us herald this message. The language Paul uses is that of an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign country yet represents their homeland. An ambassador is commissioned by their king to speak on his behalf. Paul is saying this, let's live as those commissioned by King Jesus to speak about him before others. If we view people differently, let's also share the gospel boldly. The love of Christ controls us, recreates us, and reconciles us to God. What would happen if we were to live day by day, imperfectly, but but genuinely, as Paul says in verse 15, not for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised? What would happen? I'm convinced if we were to do this individually and corporately, we ought to be asking ourselves this question. How many others might be able to say, as I can say today, I stand here before you because of this passage? How many lives might be renewed by God's compelling love in Lynchburg and the world if we, the flawed that we are, were to commit to this? How many lives might be renewed if it were only one It would be worth it, no matter the cost. Let me pray for us. Father, we are eternally grateful for your love. We think of Romans 5.8, that you demonstrate your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, you gave us heaven's best. We're just stunned at your love. And we know that now, if you're for us, who could ever be against us? And if you did not withhold your only Son, how will you not also with Him freely give us all things? Oh God, we live every moment in Your love. We are so grateful for that. And we pray that in response, You would fill our hearts with love for You. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.